listening to Chopin, the combination of protracted convalescence, bouts of exhaustion halting all my projects, melancholy news of Venezuela, and wintry thoughts of my relentless aging, have me lately turning down the lights and listening intently to some Chopin, chiefly to his nocturnes late at nights, and feeling deeply privileged overall to be myself disposed and lyrically, equipped with such advanced technology, to have the scope in quiet private space, the means, the education and good grace, the access to such high fidelity recordings by the Warsaw Philharmonic, but not least our love, my bold creative muse, my own George Sand, with her cigars and trousers, at least if we see them as metonyms, whose novels outsold those of Victor Hugo, who's been with me to lakes up in the mountains and taken her composer to Mallorca. Yet Chopin never wrote a book on China, or a book of thirty essays on the West, or a book of sonnets set in B-flat minor, or political opinions in the press. There's much, in short, that Frederick didn't do, even with a mark Lucille Dupin, that I've done in my fleeting years with you, and, having cheated death, perhaps still can. But when I'm gone, if your lone psyche yearns for all we were, read these, my own nocturnes. That was the opening bars of Frederick Chopin's Nocturne in B-flat minor, Opus 9, number 1, and Paul Monk reciting his recent poem, Listening to Chopin. You're joining us on Bloom, a podcast about anything and everything. Featuring conversations with people who've led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives in order to better understand ourselves, each other and the world around us. My name is Nick and today I'm talking with Paul Monk, poet, essayist, scholar of history and international relations and former senior intelligence analyst at the Defence Intelligence Organisation and author of 10 books. Now Paul, today I'd like to talk with you about why you write poetry, how you write it and why anyone reads poetry at all. Could we perhaps begin by having you explain what led you to write the poem you just recited? Yes, I um, have been convalescent for some time after a um, prolonged battle with um, metastatic cancer. And so I still get quite a bit of fatigue. And for three nights in a row prior to writing this poem, I was feeling particularly tired. And so at nights I would put on those Chopin nocturnes and uh, turn out the lights and lie back in a recliner and just listen to the music to relax before retiring for the night. And on the third night, it occurred to me that to be able to do this at all was a privileged thing. It was a beautiful thing. It, it was expressive of my whole way of being and the way my life has worked out. And because I've been writing quite a little, uh, quite a bit of poetry, that thought suggested itself to me as a poem. And so I thought, because I often do this, okay, I'll take that thought with me to bed. I'll sleep on it and in the morning. The poem will arise, which indeed it did. And the beauty of it is that I began, uh, as the listeners will have noted, by simply describing what had happened that night in the opening stanza. And then the poem began to unfold and, and I had the idea of my muse, my, my, my wife, my partner in life, being uh, like Chopin's muse, Georges Sand. And so I drew metaphors from their relationship. And having done that, the third stanza occurred to me because I thought, you know, I've done quite a few things too. And... Uh, and Chopin didn't do those things. And so the poem emerged like that. It wasn't mechanically produced. And it was only right at the end that I realized, as I say in the final couple of lines, that actually these poems, including this one, are my own nocturnes. And so it, it I think, turned out, you might say, nocturned out rather nicely. <laughs> 
So you've written quite a bit of poetry over the years and last several decades, actually. Uh, could you sort of talk us through what got you started and what that process was like? Yes, and the shortest possible answer is that it was a very prolonged process. Um, I, when I was very young, wanted to live, you might say, a poetic life. I had encountered little bits of poetry. Um, in my personal case, um, the richest encounter was the poems in The Lord of the Rings. But there were other things that influenced me to imagine what it would be like to have a life that was actually suffused with poetry. And that included very coloured pictures in children's books, which I had when I was a small child, uh, or other stories, adventure stories that I'd read, or history books, which were about the big wide world. Uh, but it took me a long time before I read any poetry that I felt was actually quite good. And it took me decades before I had the confidence to write poems about almost anything that occurred to me as meaningful or moving, which is what I'm able to do now. I think part of the problem was that nobody around me when I was young wrote poetry. Very few people read poetry and certainly nobody at school, no English teacher at school uh, ever said, how do you write poetry? Let's write poetry. I think some people are introduced to it at schools. I was not. So I was really on my own. And uh, I felt eccentric for a number of years because I thought, I want to write poems. I like poems. but. They seem like they're from another culture, another time and place. They're just in old books and mm. it's an odd thing to do. Uh, so it's taken quite a while. Quite a structured discipline thing as well to do it well. It is. It's a, it's a skill like any mm. other. I mean, we referred to Chopin in that first poem there. And how did Chopin become a great pianist? Well, by a lot of practice, right? And he lived in a culture where people did that kind of thing. But it still took a lot of practice. And it is said that he was very good at improvising at the piano, but he agonized over turning that into a composition. That's the work of creativity, mm. and certainly poetry is the same. But I've gone from a child who longed to do it to an adolescent and young adult who fumbled in trying to do it to a man of mature years who is now increasingly comfortable in doing it and finds it very satisfying. I might give us an example, if I may. A poem that, though it was written very recently, refers us back to when I was a little boy. I talked about coloured pictures in children's books, and this poem is about coloured pictures in a particular book I was given when I was only about six or seven years old. It was um, a children's book about the life of Marco Polo, and the images from it and the story that it told made an indelible impression on me as the poem relates. It's simply called Little Marco. The picture books of Lawrence Peach, John Kenny's pictures chiefly, filled my childish mind with coloured dreams of exotic countries and far-off times, beginning with Marco Polo. Travelling much in intervening years, I have marvelled more than ever as an elder at his images of Caesar and of Alfred, of Harry at Agincourt, Nelson at Trafalgar, but not least of little Marco Polo. The very opening pages show the boy crouching nimbly on the Venetian docks at the age I was when gaping first at him, looking with round-eyed wonder at Chinese characters on a bale of silk. Little Marco Polo, Peach intoned, whose father was a merchant, often stared at the queer Chinese or Arabic writing, pondering, as did I, from whence these bales of wonder had derived. Niccolo, his father, brought the bales from the rim of the Euxine Sea, which Jason crossed in fables long ago. But they'd come from father, Peach related, on the longest road from the farthest eastern lands. The ancient Silk Road led to Xanadu, to the awesome Mongol courts of Kublai Khan, 
and there Pete showed the youthful Marco went, while I, all eyes, went with him on his journey, and I have done on all my travels since. Yeah. One thing that strikes me about that poem is the sense of wonderment and, and playfulness of the language, and I suppose the childlike perspective. Could you reflect on the differences in your relationship to poetry when you were at the foothills of life, uh, to your perspective now, both in terms of the types of poetry you uh, find fascinating and interesting and engaging now, and I suppose the different uh, levels of comprehension and understanding you have, uh, having lived uh, over you know five decades or so? Yes. The first thought that springs to mind in answer to your question is that, of course, when you're very young, you're only beginning to master language itself. So you might exclaim joyously, you might have a lot of free emotion, Mm. but you don't have a sophisticated vocabulary or capacity to express yourself. The language lasso around a thought or feeling or... Yeah, mm. you know, and, and you try and do it, but there's a lot of learning to do. When you get to my age now, I'm in my 60s, it's very different if you've pursued education and, and been working at poetry, where you you find that increasingly you have a superfluity of the capacity to express yourself. Mm. And it becomes a matter of choosing the form of expression, the, the words you'll use, the rhythms that you'll use, the topics that you'll choose. Um, and what's interesting in that case is that I was able to give expression to the experience that I had a long time ago, which I couldn't have done when I was little, But the feeling, the memory, had always been there. And it's deepened in terms of meaning precisely because I'm looking back and so much has happened since. Of course, many poets are able to write poetry by reflecting on experiences they had 30, 40 years ago and uh, infuse it with meaning in in the present. But other poets, of course, write poetry or inspired by current events and, and other people as well. Has that experience occurred to you as well? Well, yes, it did. Of course, when I was little, like most of us, I was, uh, as a child, in a conservative family, in a little community, and so I had very limited experience of things that I might write poetry about, as well as lacking the language and the skill to write poetry at all. Um, Having had a a quite adventurous life, I've now got a superabundance of topics. But for many poets, of course, it's very particular kinds of experience that prompt them to write poetry. And famously, one of those experiences is you hit adolescence and you start getting smitten by members of the other sex, mm. or let it be said, members of your own, that that wasn't my experience. And uh, it was certainly true for me that in adolescence, particularly late adolescence and early 20s, I did fall in love with women or girls and I, I wanted to write love poems, but I didn't know how to do that well. And um, there were times when I would write a poem and even give it to a girl, you know, and get often confused responses, which were a combination of, so why is he doing this? People don't do that in Australia. Mm. <laughs> or um, it's it's a bit of a, you know, an awkward poem, you know, it's not a great poem. Or they might be touched by the fact that one had written a poem, not sure how but to not respond. sure how to respond, mm. right? And so one of the very, you know, looking back, very rich experiences I've had is gradually getting better at that so that I've now got to a point where the muse of the poems, the, for whom I write my current poems, is my wife. She is somebody with whom I have many shared memories and a very close relationship and a creative partnership. And so I don't have the problems I had as a fumbling adolescent, yeah. right? It's no yeah. longer a matter of adoration from a distance and, and writing something intense. It's a matter of 
putting into a form of words, things that we've shared, things that we yeah. dream about together. And that question of audience who a poem is written for or any creative work is always quite a, uh, an important one, isn't it? Um, it is. You know, I mean, a, a poet in one sense, I think it should be said, writes for themselves. So you can look at almost any poet and they have had an experience. We'll, we'll come shortly to talk about, say, William Wordsworth and one or two of his poems where he's reflecting on an experience he has had. Um, but other people, when they read the poem, can relate to that kind of experience yeah. and also to the beautiful expression that he gives to that kind of experience. And they may even then go to the place he was when he wrote such a mm. poem in an effort to capture that kind of experience for themselves. So if we were to distill it into a definition, what is poetry? What is actually going on through this medium, this construction of human language? I think the, the, the point of departure has to be that as human beings, we're language animals, right? Human beings have language, and from the time we're born, basically, we start learning it. We hear it, we pick it up, uh, we acquire vocabulary, we start burbling away and then constructing phrases and sentences. Poetry is an extension of that, and it's very ancient in human experience. But another way to describe it, and Edwin Muir, the Scottish poet, said this precisely about half a century ago, is that poetry, when you stop and think about it, is like a combination of language and music. And it used generally be something that was chanted or sung, right? When it turns into something on the written page, you can't hear the music, mm. but it would normally have a, a musical pattern, a metrical pattern. Providing it's read aloud, that can come through as well. That's right, but if it's recited, and, and we still have performance poetry, which is the case where the rhythm of the language uh, and the stanzas is a very much part of the experience. And I think most people would concede that if such a poem or any form of words is put to actual music and performed, the music can really lift it up. You know, if you if you see a concert, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is a concert that the Rolling Stones performed in Nirvana a couple of years ago. And they start singing classic songs like Gimme Shelter or Brown Sugar. And this audience, a huge audience, half a million Cubans are dancing and singing along mm. and chanting. They're ecstatic. Now, that couldn't happen if Mick Jagger just stood at a microphone and recited the words. Mm. It just wouldn't happen, right? In fact, you might even listen to those words or read them on a page and think, well, that's... Quite bland. Well, and, yeah, yeah mm. right. So music is key. And I think that when somebody listens to a poem, even if there isn't actual music, if it has musical characteristics, if it has a metrical pattern of an appropriate kind and rhyming language or assonance in it, those elements themselves musically affect the brain. All right. So, so the answer to your question in short is that poetry is a human proclivity to be very expressive in language and try and communicate musically and meaningfully and not just informationally. Mm. Uh, and it's heightened language. Why has that been essential to human evolution? We think about hundreds of thousands of years ago in our development, what was it about music that sort of preceded language and is so deeply rooted in ourselves and our sense of connection with others, but also that interior connection with ourselves or, or you know, dare I say, a higher being or a higher... Reality. Yeah. Yes. That's a profound question. I mean, Claude Lévi-Strauss, the great anthropologist, remarked about 60 years ago, music is the supreme mystery of humanity. It was trying to figure out where did music come from? Uh, because it's so pervasive and so integral to our way of being that we can forget that it is. We, we breathe like fish swim and mm. we don't think about why, we, why do we do that? Mm. Um, and there is an argument 
Gary Tomlinson in a very recent book called A Million Years of Music, and he's a theorist of opera, advances this fascinating argument that music as such, that is the sense of rhythm and, and rhythmic motion, is older than language. Hmm. Um, and so when it gets us moving, when the crowd in Nirvana, as I mentioned a moment ago, start dancing, something quite profound and intrinsic to our humanity is taking place. Poetry, it seems to me, is the interface between that very deep uh, relatedness to rhythm and, and to the emotions that music can literally tap into mm. and articulate speech. Yeah. And therefore, if it's done properly, if it's done consciously, it can be really quite profound. Do you have an example where that's done particularly well? Yeah, there's a famous poem of Wordsworth, which he wrote when he was still very young in 1798, called Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey. He was walking into Wales with his sister, Dorothy, and uh, he'd been there before some years ago, five years before. And he was so moved, standing, looking down at Tintern Abbey and its surrounds, that he wrote this poem almost on the spot. Anyway, it's opening lines that read as follows. Five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters, and again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs, which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. That's Wordsworth um, more than 200 years ago. And... I think if you talk with people who know their poetry, and particularly English romantic poetry, that poem about Tintern Abbey is one of the better known ones. It's evocative not only of landscape, but of the experience of landscape and the sense of nature and of personal being that it evoked for Wordsworth. And so it's a very rather nice example Mm. of what poetry actually is. If we move from Wordsworth specifically to the more general question of what poetry is, I think we could probably say three specific things. The first is that uh, the mode of expression in poetry is meditative, it's rhythmic, or as I said, more or less musical use of language. The second is, as we see in that fragment from Wordsworth, uh, there is reflectiveness as distinct from reactiveness. So it's not just, uh, as it were, an emotional uh, exclamation or shout or something, it's the articulation, the, f- the putting into words of something that's otherwise inchoate but moving. Mm. Uh, in other words, it's an exercise, you might say, in extracting meaning and not only having sensations or mm. impressions. And the third is that, as we can see in Wordsworth's case, because he opens with this very statement, there's a sense of time giving depth of meaning to what is seen and to being in the world. Mm. Um, One very famous exercise in that, which is not normally regarded as poetry, but which is highly poetic in the sense that I've been describing it, is Marcel Proust's last novel, 100 years ago, In Search of Lost Time. The language he uses is exquisite, and again and again, what he's doing is looking back on his childhood or his earlier life and remembering things that occurred and finding all sorts of meanings in it precisely because he's looking back. It's not that he's recalling all those meanings from that moment. Mm. He's able to recall the meanings looking back, A, because he's had so much more experience, 
and B, because recalling it in the context of time makes it more poignant. Yeah. And just when we think back to you now writing poetry 40, 50 years ago since your own childhood, and the way that you're able to relive or re-experience those childhood memories, which were they not given expression in the fullness of your language and, and poetic structure, uh, would be lost. But is that what's at work here as well? You can actually sort of come to relive and re-experience and, and feel again things that were lost to time? Very much, In yeah. search of lost time, as the proof, right? Yes, precisely so. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. The, take that little exercise with Marco Polo. It was a personal experience I had. Nobody but me had that precise experience. If it's not distilled into a form of words that has some structured characteristics, mm. then it just disappears. It's gone. Uh, once it's put in that form of words, mm. not only does it capture my experience, but it's available to others who could then read that poem as they read, say, Wordsworth's Tim Turner Abbey poem and relate to the kind of thing that it's saying as well as being pleased, one would like to yeah. think, by the form in which it's stated. But there are gradations of experience, right? I mean, one might have 80% the experience of Wordsworth or Paul Monk or uh, Mick Jagger's poetry, but there's a sense of fully inhabiting a poem and its import, its meaning, which you can only fully experience having written the poem. Is that, is that also your experience from being a reader to a creator of poetry? There is that sense, and, and certainly if you've written a poem that does capture well and express well an experience you've had, there can be a great deal of satisfaction I have found in going back to it and saying, you know, wow, that, that gives form and structure and endurance to something that was otherwise ephemeral or inchoate. Mm. But there's an important adjunct to this, which is that other people, while they cannot, now, no matter how well you've written a poem, they cannot recapture your personal experience. Yeah. What they can do, however, is first of all to get some sense of your personal experience, and sometimes a very fine expression of it, but above all it sharpens their own mm. perceptions yeah. of what a poem is, of what that kind of experience is, and they will carry away an interpretation of your poem in the same way that you have carried away yes. the experience of the original incident. Yes. Right? That's what meaning is, is all about. It, it's, it's very subtle and enlivening. Um, What's, can you give us another example of the interconnectedness of this tradition, of this exchange across centuries and millennia? Yes, um, there's a poem I wrote called How to Use Our Tongues, which is in fact an exploration of the poetic tradition and of what have we inherited? How did the capacity to write poetry uh, develop? And uh, this draws on a passage in Homer's very famous epic, The Odyssey, um, and uh, ends up suggesting that not only can you appreciate his poem, but through reading this particular passage in it, you can use it as a metaphor to understand what poetry as such actually is. Mm. So it goes like this. There is a passage in The Odyssey in which the beauties of Icmadius' chair are brought before our eyes, almost so that we, in wonderment, like its fabled footrest, find ourselves mortised in the frame, draped with a heavy fleece, and listening as Penelope instructs her household, your enemy, to seek the guest for story. Imagine that fine Ichmalian craft, and conjure in your mind the scene in which Penelope, in her own voice, declares, I wish our guest to tell his story whole, and patiently to hear me out as well, as I'll be full of questions, point by point. I want him, seated in our polished chair, to tell me of his travels in good time, for this stranger who is come into our halls. 
may know somewhat of Odysseus himself. All poetry is such an Igmanian chair, its music mortised into practice frames, mellifluous rhyme and artful assonance cast over it like Homer's softened fleece. Through eons both these crafts have been refined, since earlier than Gilgamesh or Ur, and they have fitly shaped the conversation from Pindar's odes to Marshall's epigrams of all that we call prosody or verse, and taught us better how to use our tongues. So notice how in that poem I draw upon the, the rich tradition of other Western poetry and how poetry itself has developed and how it works and how to do so, how to generate it in a poetic manner. This is available in principle to us all, but gaining access to the skill requires education. Yeah. Which is to say, being led into it from one or another of the Latin verbs educare or educare, to lead or draw out, bring up, rear, raise or bring away. And uh, yeah. I think this goes to the heart of what we mean by culture or higher education or, or good education. Yeah, I'd like to come back to your own sort of formative process in an educational and cultural sense. But before we get there, I think it's worth thinking about some modern forms of poetry or post-structuralist or perhaps post-modern poetry, which struggles to, I think, satisfy a few of the criteria that you set up for poetry. Could you maybe reflect on the state of modern poetry and I guess how we sort of broaden the definition to include things which seem to be totally unstructured. There's no question that in the 20th century particularly, in most fields of creative endeavour, poetry being only one, mm. it's happened in music, it's happened in um, plastic and graphic art, um, there has been a breakage with traditions, with, with formalism. Entropic sort of deterioration or decline, isn't it? Well, uh, that's the way it's seen by many people. Others have insisted that it's breaking free and it's immensely creative and it's um, you know, progressive and so forth. And that's a debate one might have all on its own. Um, but uh, one way to put it without being excessively judgmental, let's say, mm. is to liken what's been done in a lot of um, 20th century poetry or let's say modern poetry, modernist poetry, uh, to, let's say, jazz. I mean, when, when the saxophone was invented, when jazz started to be composed for that or other instruments, there were many people whose habituation was to classical music or romantic music mm. who were horrified. They, they thought, this is not music, this is, this is nonsense, or this is anarchic. Yeah. Well, it was anarchic. Whether it was nonsense is not a matter, and many of us now think that jazz is a very fine mode of music, right? And it's a very playful mode of music, right? So it darts all over a melody. It lifts it up and raises it and varies it and so on. So in the best cases, a lot of, let's call it post-melodic poetry, uh, is doing with words, doing with the very idea of meter or meaning, um, things that are somewhat anarchic. That, that Sometimes there's absent of meter and, and rhyme and everything. It, it, exactly so, but if it's any good at all, it nevertheless uh, impinges on our uh, minds, our imaginations, with its sharp use of language, with its very mm. angularity, mm. with violating expectations, with very colourful use of, uh, or even novel Top use. Topographical of, arrangements uh, and meanings, things. Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, I haven't myself written, for the most part, that kind of poetry. Um, and uh, I have two feelings about that, which are at loggerheads with one another. One is I don't really want to do that. I want to write something that's more intelligible and immediately accessible. 
uh, and I want, because I do a lot of analytical work, I'm cheery about writing stuff that's too hermetic or opaque, because I think maybe it's just nonsense, maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. Mm. On the Solipsistic other, and... Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, but there's another part of me, of course, which says, well, let's be a bit more broad-minded and experiment. Let's try out other things and see whether they work. And so there is, in the body of work I'm preparing at the moment, quite significant variation in rhyme, meter, rhythm, assonance, stanza length, you know, and construction. Um, not so far, at least, in what might be regarded as really radical and certainly not completely hermetic forms, but certainly very experimental. What springs to my mind is is the relationship between form and structure and meaning, mm-hmm. and whether uh, were you writing in the style of the sort of post-melodic form or, or formless poetic writing that's, I suppose, conventional now, you would be able to achieve the same uh, levels of meaning as you have done so by... Um, replicating Shakespearean sonnets or Petrarchan sonnets or experimenting with sort of quite structured, uh, you know, rhyme and meter um, uh, forms from centuries and millennia ago, um, even sapphic odes and things that I've seen you write as well. So do you want to reflect on the relationship between form and meaning? Yes. I think the first thing to say is that if you discard those forms of rhyme and meter, you know, rhythm, uh, you can lose the ear of the recipient because they can't follow the sound waves they can't absorb just the beauty of the use of language they have to focus in on the meaning of specific words and they have to grope or search for what's really being said here Mm. and i confess that in reading a number of 20th century poets literate though i clearly am and attuned to what poetry is and what it's for i often struggle to figure out what is this poet trying to communicate Mm. Uh, that gives me pause. And a, a friend said to me recently, and he's an intelligent man, though he's not a poet, but he said to me with regard to a particular um, poet whose work I had said I had difficulty understanding, he said, well, mate, if you can't figure it out, yeah. <laughs> who can? Yeah. But, uh, right. So, but of course, what modern music also did, you know, atonal music and so on, is quite deliberately move in that direction in order to challenge people to think and not just be more passive or, yes. or conservative. Uh, whether it's achieved that, whether that is a desirable way to go, is a debate that's well worth having. Hmm. But one thing I find fascinating about your poetry is that it sort of stands outside of that linear progression of poetic forms um, across human civilization. So, you know, it's one thing for poets of the 21st century in Melbourne, Australia, to sort of reflect the spirit of their times through the different modes and, and, and formal structures that they apply or do not apply in their, in their poetry. We can all agree it's all kind of similar in the way they're going about it. Or you think about like Langston Hughes's poetry. It was very much a product of its time and its sort of shape and rhythm and, and, and feel. But yours is sort of somehow really quite interesting in that it sort of stands outside of all that and sort of playful with different structures and ways of creating meaning, which could go, could go back millennia, which I find interesting. But I always wondered why yours hasn't sort of, you know become part of part of the flow I, I would say the short answer to that is because I didn't um, grow up as part of an artistic movement I didn't publish poems uh, as a young person in journals I had never been part of a, of a literary clique that wanted to be fashionable mm. uh, I have only come to poetry as an avocation outside of my analytical and historical work mm. 
because I wanted to give expression to what I was experiencing. I wasn't trying to meet a fashionable criterion. Um, I, you know, when I wrote the sonnets, for example, I was fully conscious that really nobody writes sonnets anymore in the Shakespearean mode. And I write in a preface to my book, Sonnets to Promiscuous Beauty. Why, therefore, did I write sonnets? Well, I wrote them to please myself. I, I wanted to see what it would be like to write sonnets in the manner that Shakespeare had, mm. albeit with a contemporary vocabulary, uh, and demonstrate to myself as much as anything that I could move around freely in the Western canon mm. in terms of myth and poetic style. And I did that. And um, what other people make of it is a secondary consideration. And to some extent now, what I'm doing is is very much self-expression. It is a much wider range of that expression and yeah. of subject matter. Uh, and I'm finding that a growing number of people are saying, I really like what you're writing. Yeah. And the primary motivator or, or inspiration behind your poetry, as you mentioned, is your wife, Claudia. Yes, she is. And... Uh, uh, this is something that arose over a period of time because uh, she arrived in my life um, fortuitously 15 years ago and right from the get-go she was fascinated by what I did and the breadth of my reading and unlike any other woman that I had known uh, many of whom I'd written poems for she said to me you are a writer and a poet that's what you should be don't just treated as a sort of eccentric thing you do on the side or privately, mm. fulfill yourself, do it. And uh, this was crystallized one day when I emerged from the office because I was working as a consultant and uh, we met after work and I came out of the office with a suit and tie on and carrying a briefcase and she said to me as if it was with surprise, you look like a businessman. I said, well, I am a businessman. And she said, no, you're a writer and a poet. <laughs> and what's actually happened in the 10 or 12 years since then um, more than that now actually, is that I've gradually come to identify myself as precisely that, as a writer and a poet. Yeah. And uh, I've said to her recently, she's the perfect muse because she not only sees in me what I have longed to be and have now in an important sense become, but she has encouraged it, cultivated it, challenged it. We've traveled together, we read things together, we talk about everything and so it's a fantastic partnership in that sense and um, uh, I'd, I'd like to share a poem with you that uh, is called The Pact We Formed and it's a pact you know that I formed with Claudia whom I should point out for your listeners um, this will surprise a lot of people uh, lives in Venezuela she lives on the other side of the world um, we haven't cohabited now for more than a decade but we've grown closer uh, and um, that's a whole story in itself which I won't go into here but as a result of living apart, we've had to work very hard at what keeps us together. And we've discovered that there are profound things that keep us together. And three years ago, I visited her in Venezuela and then flew on from Venezuela to Brazil. And when I landed in Rio, uh, I had an experience that took me back six years to when she and I had been in Buenos Aires. Uh, and this poem gives expression to that. And it links directly, even in terms of language, with Tintern Abbey, mm. with the Wordsworth poem, because he begins five years ago, and uh, I began this poem six years ago, not to echo Wordsworth. It just so happens that we're having similar experiences, and uh, we're looking back, and time is a reference point. So the poem goes as follows. Six years ago, in Kirchner's Buenos Aires, you turned to me and said in a quiet tone, look carefully at all you see around, 
since this, as cities go, in all the cone, is the finest and the grandest that you'll see. It's all downhill in quality from here. But how, in saying such a scathing thing, could you have failed to take into account great Rio, with its beach and circling hills? For once one's breathed the air of Ipanema, and heard Brazilian music in the streets, I have to say one takes a different view. I drove in from Jobim by private cab, and reveled in the pulsing sense of place. Confessing to imprisonment in English, I told my man, in halting Spanish phrases, that all the world finds Rio fascinating, as much, in truth, as any city known. He answered me in swishing Portuguese, with warmth that showed he'd plainly understood the root and sense of all I tried to say. He pointed then to Corcovado Hill, upon which stands the giant sculptured form of Cristo the Redeemer, as he's called. But it was not the sculpted, looming Christ that made me feel redeemed on Rio's strand. It was instead Atlantic Avenue, the beauteous sweep of Copacabana Beach, its contrast with the grimness of Caracas, and the pact we formed for bravely thinking big. Oh, it's very beautiful. I think it's rendered with more um, meaning, having heard the relationship that you and Claudia have had over the last 15 years or so. But when you mentioned that she was the one who said, you know, you're a writer and a poet, and the way that actually gave you license to subsequently go on and create, and I suppose become who you really are, it did immediately recall in my mind the Greek aphorism of, you know, Nothesiotin, become who you are. And I think it's quite profound, thinking back um, to the image of Claudia, almost sort of uttering an incantation, that you were a writer and a poet, I mean, she brought this into being. And it made me think of the, the, the phrase which we've used before about living poetically, living one's life, the sense of heightened meaning and purpose, but also sort of with the sense of, you know, now looking back on you and Claudia as almost in, as characters in, in a story that you both share and that you've lived independently, but now entwined in a sort of a, a poem or a song together. Do you want to sort of reflect on those sentiments? Yes, you've put it very well. And in fact, um, Claudia has a gift for that kind of insight and challenging formulation. And um, there was another occasion in which she said to me many years ago, do you realize that we are living a story that has not yet been written? Mm. And uh, she used to urge me to write stories and she still urges me to write our story. Mm. And in a sense, with the poems, I'm doing that, at least in part. Um, but the, uh, the precise question you're asking is, uh, if you're living poetically, how does that occur? What does that mean? But also looking at living as writing, right? Yes, yeah. yes. That's, well, if we're language beings and literate beings, there ought to be some kind of strong and positive correlation, relationship between language, writing, and being, mm. the way we live. But for many people, those things come adrift. So it's notorious that many people, in terms of their everyday communication and in terms of their supposedly intimate relationships, end up stuck in banalities, right? They don't communicate in any depth. They don't have real intimacy. We think about social media and the digital communication as sort of being circumscribing mediums by which we can communicate as well. Well, that seems to me to aggravate the problem. Yes, indeed. Ways, indeed. Right? But it's a very old human problem. And the way I think about living poetically is that you live your story. So mm. there's authenticity in this. It's not affectation. Yeah. Certainly one can write poetry in an affected manner. And there are many people, I think, who have a view that poetry is artificial, that it's pretense, 
that it's fantasy, that it doesn't have any strong relationship with reality. There are occasions where that might well be true. And if people live their lives in a certain way uh, that's not very poetic, then they make it true. But suppose instead you live your life inside language and story and you're creating a story authentically with depth of meaning and you're giving expression to that story in your poetry, then I would say that's the real deal. Mm. And that, I don't blush to say, is what I've been able to get to mm. and I recommend it to others. It, it's not easy. It's not a, a little game, mm. right? It, it is real and it's challenging. Do you mean to say that it, being able to write, uh, think and feel poetry has heightened your everyday experiences and also heightened your feeling of being in the world phenomenologically uh, since childhood to adolescence to early adulthood and now maturity as well? Yes, yes. Right. It, it means two things. One, as we said earlier, I've come to the point now where I can give articulate expression to things that previously I couldn't. You know, I've experienced them, but I couldn't give an articulate or poetic expression. Now, even looking back, 50 or 60 years, I'm doing that. But more importantly, in a way, what I now find is that I can have an experience, I can have an encounter with somebody, I can reflect on an object, even a simple household object, mm. and poetry just arises because I'm experiencing it, as you say, phenomenologically, mm. and so much more meaning uh, comes alive for me mm. than it does for people who, for instance, think of any given object around them, if they think about it at all, as just an, an object. Mm. Just a humble po podcast microphone, for instance. You know? Yeah. I mean, what, the way I think about objects, whether it be a you know, podcast microphone or a teacup or whatever. Is, this is thoroughly unpoetic. It's a horrible. <laughs> anyway. well, well, you see, there's, there are assumptions built into saying that it's horribly unpoetic. But it, think about it this way, and using your expression phenomenologically. Any given object we encounter, and a microphone is a perfectly good example, is phenomenal it is an mm. awesome thing when you stop and contemplate what brought this into being mm. why is it possible how is it possible to do what we're doing in recording something with, with considerable fidelity and considerable autonomy this was not possible 100 years ago 200 years ago it wasn't possible in the ancient world all right the technologies that we dispose of now when used intelligently when appreciated sensitively are extraordinary it actually is extraordinary isn't it? because it this is a conversation we're having in you know your living room here in a uh, beautiful corner of Melbourne, which will be beamed out into the world and connect with other people who are, will be listening to this podcast and our uh, in interlocution and perhaps find some gradation of understanding and, and resonance themselves. Mm. So, I mean, that's the technological projection. That's what it's capable sure. of doing. But when we talk about poetry here, I'm saying the meaning inherent in that object, its mere existence right. is a source for wonder. If we just stop and reflect for a moment, instead of taking it so entirely for granted mm. that it's just some dull thing, right? And experiencing life that way means when you encounter, as for example, I, we all do in the in Melbourne, you encounter somebody who's a beggar, whose life has fallen apart for whatever reason. Mm. You could walk past them. You could have some stock, standard or banal attitude towards beggars. Or you can pause and reflect on what this signifies, mm. this person, what background they've come from, how striking it is that there's such a contrast between their life and yours, mm. to start imagining how might it be possible, even in principle, to resurrect that life, mm. to do something for that person, and, and what would it be, and so on. And, and so at every point in your life, whether you're eating, encountering people, 
using everyday objects or reading literature, this awakened sense of significance, meaning, perspective, uh, is what it means to live poetically. And then giving expression to that by capturing your experience in articulate speech enables other people to share in those perceptions and mm. perhaps to acquire through that sharing the very idea of doing that themselves mm. and how you might experience life that way. We've just been talking about living poetically and how you feel that you are now at this stage of your life able to, to do so. Have you given effect to this and this feeling or sensation in any poetry? Yeah, I have. Um, and it won't surprise you if I say that the poems I've written along those lines have been very recent ones because it's only been in the last few years that I've reached this point of thinking I've arrived, I feel as though I am living poetically. And one of the poems I wrote um, only in the last six months or so is called Robert Graves on Majorca. Some at least of your listeners will know that Robert Graves was himself a poet and a novelist, a writer and a poet, as it were. Hmm. And uh, he uh, he died in 1985, and he was very old when he died. He was uh, one of the famous great war poets. You know, he emerged from the First World War, and his initial poetry mostly was about that. And then he he couldn't bring himself to stay in England, live in England. Uh, he wanted to be a writer of a distinctive kind, and he left England and went to the island of Majorca in the Mediterranean, and he spent most of the rest of his life mm. living in Majorca with his muse, a woman called Laura Riding, mm. and he wrote most of his poetry and books about the nature of poetry and his famous novels like Claudius, you know, Belisarius and so on, mm. there in Majorca. And I wrote a poem called Robert Grace on Majorca because I was thinking and had thought for many years, gee, I'd like to be like Robert Graves. I'd like to go to a place like Mallorca and just write poetry and write novels. And uh, as you'll see, uh, or your listeners will hear in this poem, I reflect on that and then come to the realization in the poem and at the end of the poem that actually I don't need to go to Mallorca because right here, right now, is my Mallorca. I'm doing mm. this, right? Mm. And it was really nice to see that emerge in the poem because, again, I didn't mechanically conceive of that and then just sort of hack it out. I started writing about Graves and Mallorca and then I realised as I wrote the poem where this was taking me. Mm. It goes as follows. Poetry is housed at Canadian, so Graves decreed, once at that faraway home to which he had fled from the scars of war and domesticity with a new muse and a fugitive longing to write in devotion to sing history. Deya, where he lived, sounds so like goddess, and there, we know, he wrote his paean to her, the white goddess of his fond imagination, the moon, the muse of ancient times, to whom he could or would not say goodbye. His grasp of myth was imprecise, his arguments quite whimsical, yet here he walked each morning through the hills down to the sea, read the times, and wrote prolifically. Here he later wrote with such tranquillity, and that was why he made Majorca home. The sun, the sea, the hills and olive trees, sans politics and superfluous luxuries, gave him grace for memoir, myth and verse. I have longed for years for some such Canadian, a writer's refuge lived in with my muse, a hamlet with a better Laura writing. But could I find it, would you choose to dwell with me in hiding? I first read Graves' verse when I was young. Love without hope, lost love, one hard look. But now the notion tingles on my tongue 
that these soft songs, the poems in this book, are our abode, our living Kanajan. So notice that the poem draws upon not only the refined resources of language, but on a poetic past in the form of the life and poetry of Robert Graves, imagined geography and personal memories of love and loss, and they're linked with poetic feeling. But not least how, as it concludes, it finds a surprising insight, one not anticipated at the beginning of the poem, not obvious, but itself made in the process of rendering reflection poetic, that one may long to be Graves or be on Majorca, but one's own poems, such as this present one, are one's own Majorca, and one is a poet now. I think that brings the arc of our conversation today, Paul, to a, a natural end, but before we do wrap up today, I just wanted to ask a question about, not so much about poetry, but, but literature uh, and its status or I suppose utility as um, a human art form, which enables uh, knowledge of the self, uh, of others across time. And this has been reflected throughout a lot of your um, readings today in paralleling your life to Graves or Wordsworth and so on, or even Homer, for instance. Um, but its ability to kind of allow us to understand humanity and the human condition across the centuries and millennia. So the quote I'm going to read today to sort of kick off your subsequent reflections, hopefully, is one from um, one of my favourite books, is Michel Welbeck's Submission, which I reference a little bit too much around you, I think. It goes as follows. The special thing about literature, the major art form of a Western civilization now ending before our very eyes, is not hard to define. Like literature, music can overwhelm you with sudden emotion, move you to absolute sorrow or ecstasy. Like literature, painting has the power to astonish and to make you see the world through fresh eyes. But only literature can put you in touch with another human spirit as a whole, with all its weaknesses and grandeurs, its limitations, its pettinesses, its obsessions, its beliefs. With whatever it finds moving, interesting, exciting or repugnant, only literature can give you access to a spirit from beyond the grave, a more direct, more complete, deeper access than you'd have in conversation with a friend. Even in our deepest, most lasting friendships, we never speak as openly as when we face a blank page and address a reader we do not know. So, <laughs> what do you make of all that? Does that sort of does that does that have resonance in, in you and your attitude towards literature? It absolutely does, uh, and in three ways that I'd specify. The first is that I've always been a reader of literature and history. I was a precocious reader as a child and I completely relate to this idea of gaining access through the written word, the quality written word, to a world of reality and imagination that's otherwise just not there. Mm -hmm. The second level at which I relate to it is that there have been particular works of literature which expanded my imagination way beyond what straightforward factual studies or discipline studies have done. Um, and uh, I feel as I've said this a couple of times in interviews with you and, and I probably, uh, if people are observing me, say it a little too often, but that's only to show how significant it actually was. And that is that when I was a very young boy, our fifth grade teacher read us a number of children's stories. And I said to her in recent years, that those stories made an indelible impression, but above all, The Lord of the Rings, which she read to the class. It just made a huge impression on my imagination as a child. Um, and I should emphasise, by way of closing out that second point, 
that that impact on my imagination was not such that it took me off into a fantasy world. I had mm. not actually read a lot of fantasy literature. Rather, what The Lord of the Rings opened up to me was the very idea of a whole world, his imaginary and in miniature. And I thought to myself when I was still very young, what would it be like if you had that kind of integrated um, diachronic understanding, that is some mm. understanding across time and history and mm -hmm. meaning of the real world? Mm. And I've spent my life trying to acquire that wider understanding. But the third and perhaps most important point is this, and it's one that I, I would say I derived principally from reading works of George Steiner many years ago. If we think of language as the way, I have some friends who are analytical philosophers who do think of it this way, as a medium that is supposed to communicate simply straightforward, transparent, logical information, we thoroughly misunderstand what language is all about to say nothing of literature. Uh, as Steiner used to argue, the whole point of language, the way it in fact works for human beings, and what gives it its magic and its great power, is that it defines our identity and our experience over, against, and around, and past, and beyond objects. It isn't just about communicating truth or facts. It's about generating meaning and interpretation and alternative possibilities. Mm. That's what literature does, if it's any good at all. Mm. That's what poetry does if it's any good at all. And so metaphor and simile and the language of futurity and possibility, you know, the conjunctive mood, you know, the, sorry, not the conjunctive, um, subjunctive. <laughs> the subjective mood, uh, optative mood, you know, the very idea of, of dream, of, of imagination is crucial to our capacity to set ourselves free, even in dire circumstances, by remembering and imagining and projecting and countering, right? That's to live poetically, if you can do that, and if you can share it powerfully with others. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today, Paul. You're most welcome. It's always a pleasure.